Hi, Jennifer. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi, Jeffrey. Good morning. Good morning. Wow, we did it. Okay, cool. And hi, everyone who's listening. This is another episode of Letters Off Paper. I'm your host, Jennifer Jazz. And this morning, I have the unique opportunity to be speaking with Jeffrey Summers, who has a very extensive CV, so I'm not going to try to cover all of it. <laughs> uh, Let's see, let's begin with the fact that you've been published in the Financial Times, the New York Times, the Guardian, uh, the Nation, and a lot of other news outlets. Um, your field of specialization is economics, or is that an oversimplification? Uh, political economy, which okay. um, actually e economics would be too specialized. <laughs> okay, okay, got you. And um, you're also the author of a book, Race Reality, and real politic, uh, U.S.-Haiti relations in the lead up to the 1915 occupation. You have co-authored a lot of books, it seems. One of them I know is The Contradictions of Austerity, uh, The Socioeconomic Costs of the Neoliberal Baltic Model, um, and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, so yeah, the reason why someone like me who knows zero about economics or even financial affairs. I'm just very, I guess, remiss in managing money well. I drop money on the street all the time. <clears throat> I have a tendency to ball money up in my pocket. And then when I put my hand in my pocket and remove it, drop the money and never know where it went. So it's funny that I want to have a discussion about um, financial matters. But the reason why I thought it would be good to talk to you is because in the United States, the economy is always a mystery to the average person. We live under the tyranny of the economy and we're always being told by the powers that be that we need, of course, to, to feed the economy. And I think most people innocently try to do that without asking questions about like, what does that mean? And so I have a lot of questions <laughs> for you about the economy, about globalization, all of these things that affect us that most of us don't have a clue about. But again, we try our best to, you know, to cooperate with, okay? Sure. Okay, great. So, um, well, I think before I ask you any questions, I'd just like you to tell me what led you into the realm of of political economy and, and globalization and, and doing the kind of work that you do. Yeah, well, you know, I I was interested, I, I guess. I mean, I, I almost hate to use the word because it's so overused uh, right now, but I always had this kind of strong sense of uh, justice when I was growing up. And I was also curious. And I also come from, you know, working class uh, uh, background. And I guess for me, I mean, my consciousness was raised by you know, just being in the workplace, having my first job, which was at a, a union, they, these things used to actually exist, a unionized grocery store back in the uh, very early 1980s. And, and just, you know, taking note of the dissonance between uh, how economists and news figures said economies are supposed to run and, and actually how power was exercised uh, at, at the workplace. And so I saw a, a very, you know, big gap or gulf uh, between those two. And that started kind of a, a, a long a quest to just try and figure out how all this worked out. But it included lots of really 
long segues into things like uh, history. So again, you know, I don't do economics per se in the way that we think of it in professional terms today, but I do political economy. So trying to understand kind of the intersection of economics and society and politics. Okay. So that that makes a perfect person to talk to because I'm definitely at the intersection too. I'm not at the at the statistics or data level no <laughs> yeah right right and, and in fact i you know i prefer to have uh, other people who actually enjoy that kind of work do it for me and then i can you know make sense of it just because it's it's just not my wheelhouse i don't find it very interesting to actually collect the data as important as it is and as much as i you know need it just as uh, i need oxygen to do uh you know my work wow. but um but it's not something that I actually wanted to spend time producing myself, but, but yeah, so, you know, just, you know, wanting to get some sense of how things work, why you know, so many people were starved of resources. And, um, you know, then as I was saying, I mean, that just led me in this one direction of studying politics separately for a really long time and studying history for a really, really, really long time, years and years and years in an effort to then eventually bring all of this stuff together to uh, have some better understanding of, of political economy. So that's kind of how it all started. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> okay, so there, there we go. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, the timing was in some sense really propitious for understanding current trends. And so in other words, I, I became socialized or I, you know, my late teen years uh, coincided with the emergence of, of Ronald Reagan and these titanic you know, changes in political economy. You know, so I saw everything change at the outset up through to the present. So we're kind of like living in this era still of, of Ronald Reagan and the, and the, and the, you know, changes wrought by that were wrought under the leadership of him and uh, the iron lady and uh, the United Kingdom, uh, et cetera. So that's been that's my life. I mean, my life has been lived under the tyranny of these people's well, ideas. Okay. And politics. okay. Okay. The fact that you bring up Thatcher and you bring up Reagan is interesting because I do feel their presence still very much. And oh, yeah. I have no ba- I have no basis for that. Again, I don't have any, you know, hard, you know, evidence that I can that I can link to them if we were to, you know, have a discussion based on hard evidence. I couldn't really back it up. But I do feel, yeah, I do feel the ghosts of Thatcher and Reagan very much alive. And one thing that that I'll never forget is that it was during Reagan's tenure that I first saw homeless people in the subway yeah. and on the streets. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that is so interesting that you you mentioned that because that is one of my strongest memories from that time as well. When I was a kid, I mean, I grew up in a, a, a unionized working class area and there was nothing like visible homelessness. I mean, there it might've been hidden, but, but yeah, that shock all of a sudden of seeing homeless people it just struck me profoundly. And uh, I, I, you know, it was both anger and a hurt uh, at, at, at seeing what at that time was just a very, very rich country that somehow was going to tolerate this. So yeah, yeah, that, that was just a really powerful memory for me too. And of course, as we know now, and especially, you know, in places like coastal California and a few other areas, I mean, it's uh it's an unfortunate uh, way of life now for, for so many people. I mean, I, I yeah. Just, yeah. Um, in terms of Thatcher, I was in England during Thatcher's reign. Mm-hmm. And 
we talk about the Black Lives Matter protests now. I think some people only know that's their only example of, of that type of uprising. But I've lived through a couple of those uprisings at least, okay? And one of them was in England um, during the riots that broke out in London and in the West Midlands. And actually I wasn't in the West Midlands when the riots broke out, only during the buildup. I knew and felt they were coming because of the population of young blacks in England who were so just completely fed up with, with just being on the margins. The same issues in the US with police harassment, yeah. um, limited work opportunities, et cetera. And yeah. it blew up, it blew up under her, under her. So um, yeah. everyone hated her, everyone hated her. I mean, everyone who matters, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, and, and, and you know, frankly, with good cause, uh, you know, it, it was a, as a famous uh, sociologist, uh, political scientist, you know, once commented, a mean season. You know, so there was intent uh, in, in terms of these changes. And so, wow. yeah, it, it, you know, it, it was done with full knowledge of what was being done, in effect. I mean, one can make the argument that, you know, there was this sense by some that they were trying to deal with the unraveling of, of certain forces in the 1970s that required larger repairs to the economy and society. But, you know, in economics terms, I mean, this is what we call the supply side revolution, hmm. in which they decided that the way to restore dynamism in the economy was essentially just to funnel huge amounts of uh, money back up to the top to, you know, what today, or since at least the 2008 uh, financial crisis, we call uh, the 1%, and that this would provide investment capital for doing, you know, work in terms of uh, research and design that would generate new innovations and it would make society richer. And, you know, within a, a few years or maybe a couple of decades, we would all be richer again. Instead, what happened was that process of just funneling money upward, it just continued. It just, you know, it gained momentum and it accelerated uh, rather than uh, being reversed. And it didn't uh, deliver the high levels of economic growth that they all promised. So, you know, it, it was all a sham. In, in many respects. There were a few, I think, uh, perhaps academic uh, true believers at the outset, but uh, you know, it was clear within 20 years that yeah, this thing was just a, a, a naked grab for resources. And one that once they started to feed at the trough, they had no intention of uh, leaving the all-you-could-eat buffet. I mean, and I'm referring to the 1%, they were just gonna continue to gorge themselves. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, life got really ostentatious about then, you know? Right. I never, I never really remember rich people having such a visible presence or couture having such a visible presence. It always seemed like something on the sidelines, but it's at the center of everything now. And it's, well, never mind. I'm not going to go there. I have another question. Um, okay. Here's my question. Um, I read the newspaper a lot. And I'm confused by something. The U.S. has the largest economy in the world, supposedly. And, um, and there's always these job numbers that they float, you know, that there are like all these job opportunities. But when I try to connect the dots, it seems to me that most of the work opportunities in the U.S. are in retail, uh, 
and, and, and fast food, like real, actually what I'm saying is they're minimum wage positions and there seems to be a lot of them available that no one fills. And then when you hear on the news, it says there are a lot of job opportunities that no one wants to fill. And we think it's because they're living off their, you know, those bailout checks as they like to, yeah. you know, insult us. They call them, we're bailing you out. You know, it's so right. negative. It's so mean spirited. And so they're always building a narrative that there's lazy people who are not living up to their jobs and their jobs, their responsibility, their social responsibility to feed, you know, and nurture the economy. Um, can you tell me, is it true that there are most, most of the job available, most of the jobs that are available are in retail and fast, like fast yeah, food yeah. jobs? It's definitely a service work, but you know, the laziness, if there is any, is it's really at the top of the economy. And one of the, one of the things that the whole shift of the distribution of income upward did was it allowed uh, managers and capital or owners of, of enterprises to be lazier. Uh, you know, in other words, when you, when you can pay people less, uh, you can maintain your profit margins by being lazier, by not working smarter, by not organizing production or services more efficiently. Uh, you can be more slovenly. So the laziness actually, you know, exists at the top of the economy uh, in terms of the people that are organizing it. Uh, you know, generating wealth is really, really tough work, especially when wages are high. And that's a good thing because what it does is it organizes uh, uh, things more efficiently. And, um, you know, in principle, we could all benefit from that. At least that's what happened kind of between the 1930s and the 1970s to a certain extent. But uh, yeah, that's where the jobs are. And <clears throat> one of the things that we need to remember is, I mean, we're, you know, the, one of the things that really irritates me is when I hear people say, well, uh, the minimum wage shouldn't be raised. I mean, why should we be paying 15 bucks an hour you know, for people to, and the, you know, the pejorative term they always use is burger flippers. Uh, uh, I like to cook for fun. And so I have people over all the time. I'm part of the middle class. I enjoy life. I, I get out the grill, have friends over all the time, but I can tell you, um, you know, I do it for like 45 minutes on the grill or an hour on the grill. It's hard work. It's really hot. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's fire. And, and, and this is, you know, it's not an easy thing. I wouldn't want to do it for eight or 10 hours a day. And so, you know, these jobs should pay more. They're not easy. And uh, they, uh, they, they, they really, really should pay far more. And, and one of the things that we need to remember is that the old industrial jobs, which did pay uh, really, really good wages between, say, the you know, 30s and the 70s, uh, you know, those were not skilled jobs for the most part. I mean, they were really tedious jobs. They were, you know, you, where you were sitting at some machine and pushing some bloody button all day or, you know, moving some widget. Uh, but, you know, those were not high skill jobs, but it was it was labor unions and a, a consensus that was reached within certain parts of government in the 1930s that, you know, they decided that we were going to turn these formerly low paid jobs into high paid jobs. And that's exactly what needs to be done for the service sector. Uh, well, we, need to, we need to make these into high paid jobs. OK, well, first of all, that's another reason why. I'm so perplexed by, by the economy <laughs> in the U.S. because I know exactly what you're talking about. I was born in 1960. My father was a my father was a jazz musician. My mother threatened him and said, "You're gonna do real work. You know, we're gonna have a family. You're gonna do real yeah. work." Okay, and my father began 
to take his civil service exams like millions of other Americans. Right. And then we, and from that point on, we became part of the middle class. It was pretty cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a union. And when he was sick of, of, of working, because those jobs are boring, understood. And um, they're dehumanizing sometimes, you know, right. but a lot of labor is even in the white collar sector. Yeah. Um, you know, especially programming. I, I, I speak to a lot of programmers and they tell me that it's something about it that affects your brain, that makes it go numb. You know, I hear, <laughs> I hear, like, I hear a lot of weird kind of, you know, complaints about how monotonous it is and stuff like that. Sure. Um, but the bottom line is that, yes, paying, you know, average people who didn't go to university, good wages, built the middle class in the country. How did we get here to, to this point where, we're not trying to 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 bring people on the margins into the center. Like, how did we get here? Is that again the Reagan Thatcher thing? Because it oh, definitely, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, they they were responding to a, a genuine economic crisis in the 1970s, and you know, I won't get much into the uh, roots or the causes of that, but but they were responding to a real crisis, and and it, it did require repairs or fixes. But the ones they chose were really the wrong ones. And again, it just launched us into this entirely new direction. I mean, so, you know, without the existence of the Soviet Union, you know, without the Great Depression, without World War II, just these huge tectonic shifts in the 20th century that threatened capital, uh, we we would not have had this uh, um, uh, uh, expanded middle class, which we created in the middle of of the 20th century. And it was, it was very expensive. It was very expensive to maintain for capital. And so at a certain point, you know, especially once the Soviet Union was no longer considered an ideological threat, once World War II was sufficiently in the rearview mirror that people really weren't thinking about it uh, that much any longer. And, you know, the people who had actually experienced it were either old or dead. Uh, then, you know, we could, we could move back to the... Um, distribution of income and wealth that we saw uh, before, you know, the the 1930s. And that's exactly what we've done. So we've kind of returned to a historical norm, you know, to kind of Victorian-like conditions of precarity, poverty. Uh, At the same time, you know, we're we're richer than ever. And so there's no reason that we have to uh, uh, continue in in this direction. And and we've seen that with the coronavirus uh, pandemic. I mean, you know, the government was able to cut checks so very easily, and even at a time when people were not working, which means not as much stuff is being made or produced, we, we still were able to support everyone quite uh, quite comfortably and, and with unemployment benefits that were double their previous levels. And so, you know, the the, the capacity to do this kind of thing is definitely there. Uh, you know, there's just a, a lack of still political will, although that's mounting. I mean, I would also argue that there's been this really big change since 2008 which is one of the reasons why you know, we've seen so many young people uh, becoming uh, politicized and, you know, with the whole Antifa protests and the, the BLM protests and all the rest, uh, the continued uh, precarious uh, uh, existence of uh, young people with nothing like prospects for middle-class employment, no matter how, much they cooperate with the rules of the game has led to a shift of consciousness among of that generation. So that's kind of interesting. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to say where we're going to go, but uh, we, I, I do think, see prospects for uh, a potential change given the 
really anger that, that we see simmering in society today, especially with the young. Well, <clears throat> I'm not going to go there because what I'm noticing is that we can like get as angry as we want. It yeah. just seems like there's, you know what I mean? It seems like there's no response. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter. Right. You can riot. You can have one of the uh, symptoms of mass anger are these mass shootings. Um, nobody wants to address that they're an indication of a larger social anxiety. They're right. just kind of discussed as random one-off events. Um, and yet they're not. Um, the America, again, that I know in earlier eras wouldn't have so casually accepted mass shootings, no. Right. Um, and society is really, American society is, in, the, the Sandy Hook shooting was the first time that I realized that a barbaric kind of demonic force had taken over the country. Because when you walk into a school and you shoot little kids at their desks and there are no mass protests, uprisings, or even a simple thing like an annual kind of acknowledgement that that happened, some kind of, you know, memorial type service every year or something, nothing, not a sound. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's very disconcerting to say the least. And, uh, you know, at most what you get are these kind of hand wringing sessions, you know, where you, you see a few people, you know, talking about the usual customary thoughts and prayers and all the rest. Um, yeah, but, but it, the degree to which it has become uh, accepted, you know, like like bad weather or something like that is it's just, yeah, frightening. I mean, it's, it's not something that a generation back would have been uh, uh, permitted without some kind of response yeah we would have worn yeah. black bands you know we used to wear black bands when there was an assassination i mean we had assassinations we were never like a peaceful country right. but at least you know on the day or the few days later your parents would tell you i remember i wore a black band on my coat to go to school my brother wore one when dr king was assassinated yeah. um i mean well and anyway these were, these were a common feature of the you know the gilded age too in the late 19th century I mean, political assassinations and things like this, but um, this is different, right? I and mean, yeah, you're, we're not talking about political assassinations. We're we're we're, we're talking about uh, you know, as as Mark Ames, you know, referred to it in his uh, book of uh, you know a generation back when this kind of thing started, uh, you know, going postal. Uh, exactly. You know, people who are just really tightly wound and very very angry, and it just the you know the band snaps at some point and and they commit these terrible uh, acts and it's really not focused in any way it's just that you know whoever is around them so yeah well yeah. um what also stood out to me about the sandy hook event was that the nra ridiculed people at that point who were trying to to somehow argue you know for some kind of I don't know what people wanted after those kids were, were murdered, but people wanted, I think, to see less guns on the street, less violence, you know, and the NRA at that point, they came out firing even more. They were really vicious towards anyone who questioned how many guns there were or if even the NRA itself was a negative influence in a country where a young man could walk into a school and start shooting. And there hadn't been a string, a series of shootings yet, but the NRA would get more and more vicious when those kids were uh, shot at the school in Florida. I can't remember the name of the school in Florida, yeah. but when they were all, you know, just shot down at their desks, um, 
there was the same kind of uh, response from from the powers that be, you know, who support the whole gun thing. Yeah, they're very term, vicious. They ridicule. Overused, but it's really a fascist response, isn't it? On an emotional level, I mean, this um, belittling and this kind of you know vicious, vindictive uh, you know rejoinders that are are, are launched against uh, people. I mean, it's that's become a feature of much of the political right as well, hasn't it? It's very effective. When you yeah. start to respond to things that we take for granted are sinful or morally wrong, and you laugh at those things, well, I mean, it's a way to just basically kill an entire society. It's sense of right and wrong. It's sense, it just makes people feel like whatever goes, we have no choice. And you're right, that's fascism. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, unbelievable. Um, I wanted to ask you about, well, you brought up the financial crisis, something that no one ever brings up again. It seems like the financial crisis of 2008 um, is over. But for me, it never ended. It never ended. It changed the United States. Well, I don't know about the larger country. I'm a typical New Yorker. I only know New York, basically. And I saw what it did to New York. Um, I was working for a company. I was at that point, up until that point, able to find work, okay? Always able to find work up until that point. Not necessarily, you know, dream work, but I can't think of any work that, you know, is, is my dream come true. But I was able to find work. I was able to pay bills and that type of stuff. And when the financial crisis came, I remember sitting in an office where we had the belief that it was going to go back to normal in about a month. And so we sat at our desks for a month in total silence. And then at the end of the month, the CEO appeared and said, okay, I'll be calling you one by one into the office. And of course, we were given, you know, our exit papers and had to sign. And the whole company um, supposedly was supposed to shut down. But that's not what happened. I called someone who still worked there in customer service doing stuff that the sales and, and yeah, the sales account executive staff once did. What companies did during the financial crisis was they recreated themselves as much lighter, uh, you know, type ideas, you know, like we don't have to, we don't need 50 people. We don't need a hundred people. We can do this with three people and a platform. And that's what happened to, to my company. And it, for me, it became a template. I knew what was going on. Other people kept saying things will get back to normal, but no, every, everybody was kind of, this is, you know, this is going to be a gig and this is going to be a platform thing. And I saw the gig platform thing kicking in. I was like, no, jobs aren't coming back. They're not coming back. This is ridiculous. Do you see what's happening? Um, tell me about that transition from real employment to, to gigs. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess we've seen three stages of this. I mean, one would have been during the you know, Reagan-Thatcher uh, years in which there actually was somewhat of a, a shift towards short-term employment and, you know, employment agencies such as Manpower and others grew uh, significantly at this time. And we, you know, eventually saw the introduction of things like two uh, tiered uh, systems on factory floors where, you know, the older workers still uh, were under their uh, old union contracts for all the new workers doing the exact same jobs and they brought in were brought in at half the pay. And then, of course, just as you're referring, you know, getting us up now to 2008, uh, we see the restructuring of, you know, these companies in which it was you know, no longer uh, just the, the grunt workers that uh, 
were seeing their positions eliminated, but you know, it was moving up the, the income and the uh, skill uh, ladder as well in terms of people being uh, replaced and, and let go, never uh, really to uh, come back. You know, just to give you an example of this, and there's some irony with it. I mean, I know somebody that owns a, a, a firm in the Baltic states that, you know, hooks up oligarchs in the like, former Soviet space with uh, districts such as Ireland and Delaware and others to set them up with companies so they can launder their money. What? Even, even, even in a business like this, uh, um, you know, after the, the, you know, the 2008 crisis, they actually reorganized their whole business and shed much of their workforce. I mean, there was a sense that, that, yeah, we don't need all of these workers. So even the, the people who, you know, uh, in some respects are actually kind of responsible for some of the uh, unpleasant changes that we've seen in terms of how we structure our economy, even started to restructure their, their businesses as well. But, but the pandemic went even further still in terms of, of showing many businesses that, you know, look, actually, hey, we've just seen that we don't need um, this many people that we have left uh, regardless. I mean, we can, we can even do as much work with even fewer people. And so, you know, we have, uh, you know, smaller offices now and smaller groups of, uh, of core uh, employees. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's a process which has uh, continued apace, I think, ever since the, uh, the Reagan uh, Thatcher years, but definitely accelerated significantly following 2008. And then again, uh, with the pandemic uh, more recently. So, yeah, we really need to rethink uh, jobs, which I guess then would, you know, lead to a discussion potentially of things such as, you know, a minimum basic uh, uh, income, uh, you know, whether you want to do something like that or if you want to create employment uh, in the public sector and, and put uh, people to work that way because we're, we're going to have to figure out how we can actually get money into people's pockets so they can actually survive and live because the, the economy is, is not one which, as it's currently structured, is going to provide people with the uh, means to uh, consume all of the goods and services that we can create, um, nor you know, live at decent levels. Well, what do you think of the university system or the college system? I most of the young people who I speak to are not in the U.S. They're you know in in Russia or or Ukraine or Israel. Um, uh, where else? Um, Belarus sometimes. You know, yeah. and so they're idea of a university education is much more practical and the universities are structured to basically give you a career and, and that will lead into a job. Does that always work? No, but most of my students by the time they're in high school um, are aware of what their job will be so that they choose a specific career track by going to university. Um, they're, they're, nobody that, you know, that I have any contact with understands why anyone would get a liberal arts degree <laughs> because it's, it just doesn't seem like it, it would lead towards tangible labor and also labor that you would make a living wage for. Um, it seems to me that the United States college system is still stuck in the liberal arts model and that the tech industry, which I believe is the second largest to healthcare or something like that, is depending on importing labor because U.S. students are notoriously terrible at math and science and right. don't have the skills to fill those positions. Um, can you speak to that a little? Yeah, I, I mean, at the risk of uh, digressing again, I mean, I uh, come from uh, an experience which is a little bit uncharacteristic of 
some of these larger trends that that you're uh, indicating are uh, in player in force, and I definitely agree with you. Uh, I've been teaching on and off in the Baltic states, you know, for for 25 years, and and there it's interesting in terms of the you know kind of post-Soviet uh, period. The higher education system actually expanded greatly rather than contracting, and just in terms of the number of students enrolled, I mean, in terms of funding, I mean, it just disappeared. Uh, but but students went way more into the arts and, and culture and uh, the humanities, uh, uh, you know, than they did even during the Soviet period. In the Soviet period, I mean, it was actually focused more on on math, and, you know, the sciences, and you know, picking up some kind of technical skill or trade. Uh, but in the United States. You know, I teach at a public university and I'm at a second tier uh, university. So I'm at the University of Wisconsin, but I'm, you know, it's a big, big system with 20 some odd campuses. And we have the, the flagship uh, school, which is Madison. And then the other uh, research university that we have in this really, really big system is in Milwaukee. And so I'm based in Milwaukee. But Milwaukee uh, serves more of a, a working class and lower middle class uh, demographic. And, and those students the past 10 years, at least since the, financial crisis have overwhelmingly shifted uh, to study uh, careers and, you know, in professions of one sort or another. So they've, uh, they've really abandoned the humanities and the, and the social sciences uh, to select, again, these professional uh, majors. And interestingly, not, not business so much, uh, which hasn't done all that well, but uh, you know, other areas, you know, accounting, et cetera, you know, areas where you, in other words, not to be a manager, but to actually have some technical skill that, that uh, can allow you to uh, find employment. So there's definitely been a shift uh, there. And, and, you know, much of that has been brought about by the very kind of precarity, which you have uh, referenced uh, that we've seen since 2008, but also signals that were sent uh, from the top. So, you know, we had Marco Rubio, for instance, when he, <laughs> ran for the uh, GOP uh, primary spot. I mean, you know, he was talking about how, well, you know, we, we have to stop producing these useless majors like philosophy, you know, he said. And, uh, you know, interestingly, if you take a look at philosophy, if you take a look at standardized test scores, I mean, the, the two majors that produce the, the top standardized test scores are physics and philosophy. So, you know, these are, are, are not dull students by by any stretch that are going into philosophy. Number one, there's almost none of them as well. I mean, there are almost no philosophy majors and the thing that we could actually use is a lot more of them. Uh, but, but, you know, but he somehow kind of took an idea that happened to be, I think, in the larger consciousness that somehow this was a useless area of study or it wasn't a very rigorous one and then reinforced that. Uh, and I also hear too about black studies, women's studies, et cetera. I mean, this is something that you hear on talk radio. A comment yeah. that, that these are all areas that are somehow unworthy of study. And if you do actually pursue them, you've got no chance of uh, getting a job. So it has resulted in, you know, these areas uh, seeing hits to their enrollment. This, sure. Okay. We need more nuance. We need more nuance. Th these guys are crazy because what I've noticed is that a lot of my students who are, have, you know, some kind of technical prowess, they haven't read literature and yeah. The bottom line is this, where are they going to work? What part of the world do they find most creative? It's the part of the world where you have more liberal arts majors and people reading stuff that has no relation to their quote unquote vocation. Yeah. So the US, yeah, the US is not 
known for being great at, at vocational training. No, not at all. It's it's like Harvard has like I think a hundred libraries on campus or something full yeah. of all kinds of obscure reading material. It's beautiful, you know what I mean? I have no problem with that. I'm just saying we need more nuance. Definitely um, when we talk about incubators, when we talk about, you know, countries that like, well, China was supposedly to exist at the service of the U.S. and it's and the U.S. is heartbroken that that is not the case any longer. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, we need more nuance. We need to acknowledge that they'll always, if we're going to create a service economy, it shouldn't be overseas. Tap into communities in, in rural areas where people might have more practical ideas about the future and maybe don't want to pursue sexy majors like women's studies, maybe not. Um, but there's like untapped, you know, there's untapped labor in the country. It's a labor force that wants to be, you know, that wants to own property and raise families and buy things. And there's just something very mean spirited about the whole American system in terms of it overlooking its own impoverished population that insists on bringing in um, math and science talent from countries that score higher on international exams, no doubt. But how can you overlook the fact that you have an untapped reserve of kids who would probably be just as good in math and science? And it's just, it's very mean-spirited. I can't see anything else. Maybe, what is it? Is it that they can cheap, get cheaper labor? By yeah, well, that, that, that's, that's, that's it mostly for the most part. I mean, so business just doesn't want to pay, you know, what it would take to actually get Americans to to do this kind of thing, but also, you know, because of this kind of anti-intellectualism, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be overly critical of, of um, the, the, you know, American working class or middle class, but I mean, we, we don't have overall on balance, you know, I'm over generalizing perhaps to a certain extent, but we don't have the same kind of discipline that immigrants have. I mean, immigrants, uh, and depending on, you know, where they're from, but, but they, they typically understand that education is essential if one is going to have any shot at avoiding uh, poverty. And so they inculcate uh, their kids in the sense that, you know, it's something that you, you really need to take seriously. And so, you know, they'll, if people have aspirations to either staying in the middle class or joining it, they'll, uh, abroad I'm sp speaking of now. And then of course is with the, you know, upper middle class here as well, you know, they'll get tutors for their kids and uh, th there's just this constant messaging that this is something that's really, really important. And so, um, you know, that's how this talent is produced abroad and, and what talent we do pr uh, produce uh, here domestically. It's, it's done, you know, usually by the, the upper middle class, although it's interesting because uh, domestically, you know, our, our talent typically goes into, uh, you know, areas like finance or uh, uh, entertainment um, or um, insurance. I mean, you know, th this is where the, the money really is. So we, we just for the, the basic kind of technical work that we need done, yeah, we, we overly rely on, on immigrants. But, you know, we, we've had something like this once before. I mean, with, you know, to reveal my age, of course, as well, uh, you know, with Sputnik. And when the Soviets launched, you know, the first satellite into outer space, I mean, that, you know, kind of shook up Americans a little bit and then it resulted in lots of money being rained down from Washington to uh, education so that we could get kids more seriously interested in, in studying math. And, and that actually paid off. Uh, they did. And uh, it produced a, a lot of really, really strong uh, talent in, in the sciences. Uh, 
I, I don't see that as entirely replicable today, but, but, uh, but, but we'll see. Well, I mean, look, unfortunately, when you discuss trying to build math and science skills in the U.S. domestically so that the U.S. is not as reliant, it's not really an issue. We are, yeah, is not as reliant on finding the talent overseas. It becomes an argument that sounds anti-immigration. Now, in defense of myself, my grandparents, my great-grandmother, and multiple cousins entered the U.S. on green cards. Why? Well, I can tell you that my grandmother, she was trained, you know, to sew in a post-colonial finishing school. She had like Seville Row type talent. You know what I mean? Like she, I mean, and so when she entered the U.S., she was able to be gainfully employed, not gainfully, not in the kind of glamorous way that we think of today, but she had, again, a strong union representing her. She belonged to, to the United, what is it, Workers Women's Garment Union, the, the strong, it's one of the strong unions in the country, or was. What's it called, the UWG, blah, 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 blah? Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay, it's one of, the, what, what, one of the strongest unions in the country, and she benefited from being a part of it. Um, and again, you know, was she taking jobs from people? No, why? Because there weren't many tailors who could do the kind of yeah, work she did. Right. She actually worked in a, in a sweatshop um, with women from Eastern Europe, mostly. Right. Um, the type of, you know, skill it took, and they did couture for men. Um, that skill just wasn't easily available, you know, in the U.S. at that point. And so I'm not attacking my own family either, you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying that we have to look at these things and make decisions. I mean, you should not have so many young kids in the United States um, doing gigs. And, 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 then, and then you read the headlines, you know, young people are taking longer to start families. Young people can't afford rent and are living back home longer than prior generations. I mean, it's destabilizing. It's just that simple. Yeah, no, I mean that, that's that's what we've seen with neoliberalism. I mean, you know, the yes. I mean, that's the. I mean, it's we're we're this discussion about importing talent, and I'm of you know very mixed mind on this. I mean, you know, I don't want to sound anti-immigrant either, but I don't like the idea that we have to poach talent from the rest of the world. And you know, you have societies that spend all this money, invest all of these resources in raising their kids and educating them, and then you know, the United States just plucks them off. Uh, yeah, them exactly. The and the and, kids you know, are stuck with the debt. These yeah, kids carry. That yeah, is ridiculous. Yeah. But but you you know you see this in Italy, Greece, other places where you know uh, young people are are living at home until they're and these are just average ages, you know, thirty years old and, and and more. You know, small towns are emptying out because just as you were saying, people don't have the uh, financial wherewithal if they want to start families to start them, and and so the whole system has become very parasitic. It's depending upon wow. the, it's it's depending upon the importing of of talent and people. So if you take a look at the United Kingdom, you know since the nineteen nineties and that whole system ran on importing cheap labor from Poland. You know the infamous or famous Polish plumber, the the, the waiter waitresses from you know Latvia, uh, Ukrainian workers, ro- Romanian agricultural workers, Bulgarian construction workers. You know so we see the the entire emptying out of places. Uh, to serve, uh, you know, these richer economies that don't have the stomach to uh, uh, pay for, you know, um, workers at home, what is a, a li- you know, what we call a livable wage. And, and so we see entire parts of the world that are just being emptied out of their people, you know, again, Romania, Ukraine, Baltic states, etc. 
uh, it's a it's a it's a mining operation. I mean, we we see the 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 rich world mining the poorer parts of the world for for people, and these these are places that are just going to collapse demographically. They 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 can't be sustained given the numbers of young people that they've lost. Okay, it's a strip okay. mining operation. Except that the well, thing that's being mined is people. Okay, you said collapsed, and you made me think of infrastructure. This is my last question right. for you because we could go on forever. Okay. Here's my very, very last question. Of course, I have to wonder and I have to ask about infrastructure. I'm from New York and I've met people, many people have told me, you know, when they come there, they're shocked at how low tech it is. Yeah. And now the subway system, it looks like something from, you know, prehistoric times. And then you have like cables running through trees when in South Korea, a country that doesn't have, you know, the glamorous GDP that we have, they have their cables underground. Yeah. That's what South Koreans always tell me. We put our cables underground. If we have bad storms, then we don't have blackouts. We don't have whole areas that just, you know, go black for for days or weeks like we've had in New York. We've had weeks after bad weather where whole neighborhoods were just completely without electricity um, because of our old infrastructure. Why, why, why do we have such an old infrastructure, such old railroads? Russia has high speed. Come on, what's going on here? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's interesting, well, especially since you referenced the Russian example. I mean, you know, Russia does actually have some modern infrastructure. Some, no, yes, really some. Else, but it does have some. And when they do it, I mean, they pay, you know, five times what anyone else uh, pays because they have to just line all these oligarchs' pockets. But, but, but even they understand that sometimes you have to do it <laughs> regardless. You know, and we just don't here. Uh, and so, of course, you know, Biden is talking about actually beginning to do some of that. I mean, you, you, you just can't run an economy efficiently without making these investments. And these are investments that we've put off for a long time. Uh, and, and, and they have to be made. Of course, you also reference, you know, the situation on the East coast. It's largely an East coast thing where we put all these damn wires up in the air rather than putting them on the ground. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's ugly as sand for one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. And then you also have the practical you know problem of all these uh, blackouts and other things that occur every time a tree branch falls. Uh, but, um, um, yeah, it's, it's more expensive, uh, you know, to, to do this kind of work, especially in more densely populated parts of the country, such as on the East coast. That's one of the reasons why they haven't done it. Uh, if you take a look at things such as, um, subway construction costs in the United States versus other parts of the world, it's just incredible how much we pay because we just do it very inefficiently. And we've lost the habit of being able to do big projects efficiently. So our, our per mile subway construction costs are like 10 times what they are in China. or even two or three times what they are in places like France, you know, where, you know, labor costs are, are not really less than ours. So there's just, you know, there's just something about, too, the way we do things that's just very, very inefficient. And then there are, you know, eminent domain issues. Oh we, couldn't do the, we couldn't do the California oh uh, high-speed rail between L.A. and San Francisco. You know, I mean, so the United States has become a place that just doesn't work. You know, and that has to be changed as well. Well, where's the silver lining? Come on. Yeah. Where, is it Where? Yeah, if there is a silver lining, and uh, okay. I'm not given to thinking in those terms, I guess. Uh, but, you know, the, the silver lining is, is that the contradictions have built up to such an extent that they're really no longer sustainable. Or... Uh, we will just continue to kind of descend and, and, and you know, become 
I guess, kind of a mirror reflection of, say, Brazil. I mean, that could be our future. Wow. Um, but and I think we're already, you know, we're already at least halfway there. But um, that, that, you know, that is a, a, a possibility as well. So in other words, we, we have to decide. We're at a point where we can't just keep punting on this, on this model, where we just keep sustaining it as it is. And it's a system which has generated, you know, fantastic uh, profits uh, for you know again the one percent uh but it's 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 a model which um has just left too many people behind and, and you know we might be at a, a kind of an inflection point where uh, enough uh, uh in the way of uh, competing forces are are beginning to align an array that take us in a new direction so one of those being of course the perceived competition coming from China. You know, hopefully that won't reprise the Cold War that we have with the Soviet Union. But but there are, you know, countries often do respond to what they perceive to be external threats. So it very well may be that if China continues to be perceived as an external threat, that this actually has some upsides for the United States in terms of uh, reorienting us back to some kind of sustainable uh, uh, um, a model, uh, not like the old one where it was just endless growth, but you know, one where we actually just invest in our infrastructure, invest in our people, etc. So we'll see. Yes, we will. We will. <laughs> we will indeed. <laughs> That's an ominous ending. Um, Jeffrey, I can't thank you enough, you know, for doing this with me. I've always wanted to have this conversation with someone. I don't really know anyone who'd be interested in, in, in fleshing things out to this extent about money and the economy and the job market and infrastructure. Um, but I think about these things all the time for some reason. So, you know, thank you for Absolutely. hanging out with me. need people thinking about them. Yeah, yeah, I so think good. so. That would be good, I guess. Um, anyway. You know, thanks again for hanging out with me. And uh, maybe we can do this again when your next book comes out. All right. Sounds good. Take care. All right. Nice being you with too. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.